Hello, and welcome to a special Christmas edition of Twilight Thriller Radio. Tonight, we bring you Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Settle into your favorite chair and listen as Ebenezer Scrooge gets advice from four ghostly spirits. Ignore all floating phantoms outside your window, and don't forget to have a pot of gruel. From God our heavenly Father, a blessed angel came, and unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same. How that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. All tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. All tidings of comfort and joy. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I do not know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign his sole friend, his sole mourner. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name, however. There it yet stood years afterwards above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people knew the business called Scrooge Scrooge and sometimes Marley. He answered both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone was Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. External heat and cold had little influence on him. No warmth could warm, no cold could chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of their advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say, with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. No man or woman ever once in his life inquired what way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind man's dog appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they say, no eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master. For what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, was what the knowing ones call nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting, foggy weather. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day. The candles were flaring in the windows of the neighboring offices. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. 
The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep an eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond, a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white shawl and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. And now arrives the nephew of Scrooge, so heated with rapid walking in the fog and frost that he was all aglow. His face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled, and his breath smoked again at his cheerful greeting. Bah, humbug. Christmas, a humbug, uncle. You don't mean that, I am sure. I do. Out upon Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer. A time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you. If I had my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart, he should. Uncle. Nephew. Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good by which I have not profited. I dare say Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow travelers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. Let me hear another sound from you and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir. I wonder you don't go into parliament. Don't be angry, uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. I'll see you in hell. But why, why? Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love. <laughs> Good afternoon. Nay, uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party. But I have made the trial in a homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humor to the last. So, a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. And a Happy New Year. Good afternoon. His nephew left the room without an angry word notwithstanding. The clerk, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let another person pleasant to behold in. 
who now stood with their hat off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands and bowed to him. Scrooge Marley's, I believe? Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago this very night. I have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. It certainly was, for they had been two kindred spirits. At the ominous word liberality, Scrooge frowned and shook his head, handing the credentials back. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons, but under the impression that scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the unoffending multitude, a few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it's a time of all others when want is so keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the prisons and the workhouses. They cost enough and those who are badly off must go there. But many can't go there, and many would rather die. <laughs> if they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. But, sir! It's not my business. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon. At length, the hour of shutting up the counting house arrived, with an ill will Scrooge dismounting from his stool, tactically admitted the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If quite convenient, sir. It is not convenient, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself mightily ill-used, I'll be bound. Yes, sir. And yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. It's only once a year, sir. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier the next morning. The clerk promised that he would and Scrooge walked out with a growl. The office was closed in a twinkle, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no great cloak, went down the slide at the end of the lane of boys twenty times in honor of it being Christmas Eve, and then ran home as hard as he could pelt to play at blind man's bluff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms in a lowering pile of buildings up a yard. 
The building was old enough now and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge, the other rooms being all let out as offices. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door of this house, except that it was very large. Also, that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in this place. Also, that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London. And yet, Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. It was not an impenetrable shadow, but had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned upon its ghostly forehead. As Scrooge looked fixedly, this phenomenon of the knocker again. Poo-poo. Scrooge closed the door with a bang. The sound resonated through the house like thunder. Every room above and every cask of the wine merchant's cellar below appeared to have a separate peal of echoes of its own. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He fastened the door and walked across the hall and up the stairs, slowly too, trimming his candle as he went. Up Scrooge went, not caring a button for it being very dark. Darkness is cheap and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to desire to do that. Sitting room, bedroom, lumber room, all as they should be. Nobody under the table, nobody under the sofa, a small fire in the grate, spoon and basin ready, and the little saucepan of gruel, Scrooge had a cold in his head, upon the hob. Nobody under the bed and nobody in the closet, Nobody in his dressing gown, which was hanging up in a suspicious attitude against the wall. Lumber room as usual, old fire guard, old shoes, two fish baskets, washstand on three legs, and a poker. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in. Double locked himself in, which was not his custom. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap, and sat down before his very low fire to take his gruel. <laughs> Humbug. Then Scrooge heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It came on through the heavy door and a spectre passed into the room before his eyes and upon its coming in, the dying flame leaped up as though it cried, I know him, Marley's ghost. Same face, the very same, Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots. His body was transparent so that Scrooge observing him and looking through his waistcoat could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. No, nor did he believe it even now, though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of its death-cold eyes and noticed the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about his head and chin. He was still incredulous. How now? What do you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? 
In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you... can you sit down? I can. Do it, then. Scrooge asked the question because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair, and felt that, in the events of it being impossible, it might involve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace, as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe in me. I don't. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than a grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge is not much in the habit of cracking jokes, nor did he feel in his heart by any means waggish then. The truth is, that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his horror. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom, taking off the bandage around his head, as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Mercy! Dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Why do spirits walk the earth and why they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me. And witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turn to happiness. You are fettered. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link, yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will. And of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? (sighs) Or would you know the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Jacob, old Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. I cannot tell you all I would. A very little more is permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. Seven years dead. And traveling all the time. You travel fast. On the wings of the wind. You might have got over a great quantity of ground in seven years. Blind man. Blind man! Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunities misused. Yet I was like this man. I once was like this man. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. 
the dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Scrooge was very much dismayed to hear the specter going on at this rate and began to quake exceedingly. Hear me! My time is nearly gone! I, I will, but don't be hard upon me. Don't be flowery, Jacob. Pray. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of my procuring, Ebenezer. You were always a good friend to me. Thank ye. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? It is. I, I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. <sighs> Expect the first tomorrow night when the bell tolls one. Oh, couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Expect the second the next night at the same hour. The third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more, and look that for your own sake. You remember what has passed between us. The apparition walked backward from Scrooge, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little so that when the specter reached it, it was wide open. Marley beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. He became aware of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regrets. The specter joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the dark, bleak night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity. The air was filled with phantoms wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. Scrooge tried to say humbug, but something stopped the first syllable. And being from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, he went straight to bed without undressing and fell asleep on the instant. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber until suddenly the church clock told a deep, dull, hollow, melancholy one. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn aside by a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man, viewed through some supernatural medium, which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and in singular contradiction of that wintry emblem, had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. 
but the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright clear jet of light by which all this was visible and which was doubtless the occasion of its using in its duller moments a great extinguisher for a cap which it now held under its arm are you the spirit sir whose coming was foretold to me i am who and what are you I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. The things that you will see with me are shadows of the things that have been. They will have no consciousness of us. What business brings you here? Your welfare. Rise and walk with me. It would have been in vain for Scrooge to plead that the weather and the hour were not apt to pedestrian purposes, that bed was warm and the thermometer a long way below freezing, that he was clad but lightly in his slippers, dressing gown, and nightcap, and that he had a cold upon him at that time. The grasp, though gentle as a woman's hand, was not to be resisted. He rose, but finding that the spirit made toward the window, clasped his robes in supplication. I am immortal and liable to fall. Bear but a touch of my hand there, and you shall be upheld in more than this. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall and stood in the busy thoroughfares of a city. It was made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that here too it was Christmas time. The ghost stopped at a warehouse store Scrooge recognized, Fezziwig's trading house. He had apprenticed there. They passed the door into the warm, busy room, carolers singing at the back. Deck the halls with boughs of holly, fa la 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 Tis the season to be jolly, fa la 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 Time we now our gay apparel, fa la 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 that's right, my lads. Sing away. Merry Christmas to you. Thank, thank you, Mr. Fuzzywig. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank, thank you, Mr. Sir. Passed away the old year passes. Fa la 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 la. Hail the new year, lads and lasses. Fa la 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 la. Sing we joyous all together. Fa la 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 la. It's old Fezziwig. Oh, bless his dear old heart. It's Fezziwig alive again. Yo, my boys. No more work for tonight. Christmas Eve, Dick. Christmas Eve, Ebenezer. God bless Christmas. Aye, aye. God bless Christmas. Did you hear that, Scrooge? That is yourself. And you said, God bless Christmas. <laughs> That's true. That was 30 years ago. The missus and the girls are downstairs, so let's clear away before you can say Jack Robinson. Yo-ho! That's right, Dick. String the Christmas greens. Here you are, Ebenezer. We're going to have the merriest time in all the kingdom. I'll show ye how to enjoy life. That's it. Now we're all ready. Wreath the holly, twine the bay. Let's have lots of room. Clear away, Dick. Here comes the fiddler now. Merry Christmas, sir. The same to you, my good man, and many of them. Bless me, I thought we'd be late. And how's my merry boys tonight? 
Merry Christmas, Mrs. Fezziwig. The same to you, dear lads. Where's the girls, mother? Here they come. Flora, Felicity, and little Fanny Mae. Poor <laughs> 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 <Or> drink. <laughs> this is the real spirit of Christmas. And here's the mistletoe. I've got you. God bless the boy. And God bless the Merry Christmas. And now dance, my hearties. Yo-ho for the old-time Christmas dance. There were more dances, and there were forfeits, and more dances, and there was cake, and there was negus, and there was a great piece of cold roast, and there was a great piece of cold boiled, and there were mince pies and plenty of beer. But the great effect of the evening came after the roast and the boiled, when the fiddler struck up Sir Roger de Coverley. Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig, top couple too, with a good stiff piece of work cut out for them, three or four and twenty pair of partners, people who were not to be trifled with, people who would dance and had no notion of walking. But if they had been twice as many, ah, huh, four times, old Fezziwig would have been a match for them, and so would Mrs. Fezziwig. As to her, she was worthy to be his partner in every sense of the term. If that's not high praise, tell me higher and I'll use it. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig took up their stations, one on either side of the door, and shaking hands with every person individually as he or she went out, wished him or her a Merry Christmas. When everybody had retired but the two prentices, they did the same to them, and thus with the cheerful voice died away. The two lads were left to their beds, which were under the counter in the back shop. What a small matter to make these silly folks so full of gratitude and happiness. Small? It was the happiest time in my life. And yet your master only spent a few pounds of your mortal money. Three or four, perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. What's the matter now? Oh, nothing. Something, I think. No, nothing. Only this. I wish I could say a word or two to my clerk just now. That's all. My time grows short. Quick, I have another picture for you. This was not addressed to Scrooge or to anyone whom he could see, but it produced an immediate effect, for again he saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of life. He was not alone, but sat by the side of a fair young girl in a black dress in whose eyes there were tears. It matters little. 
to you very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you? A golden one. You fear the world too much. I've seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion, gain, engrosses you. Have I not? What then? Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? I am not changed towards you, am I? Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until in good season we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was the boy. Your own feeling tells you that you are not what you are. I am. That which promised happiness when we were one in heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. Have I ever sought release from our engagement? In words, no. Never. In what, then? In a changed nature, in an altered spirit, and everything that had made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this contract had never been between us, tell me, would you seek me out and try to win me now? No. You think not. I would gladly think otherwise if I could. But if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can I even believe you would choose a dowerless girl or choosing her, do I not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do, and I release you with a full heart for the love of him you once were. Spirit, show me no more. Conduct me home. Why do you delight to torture me? One shadow more. No more. No more. I don't wish to see it. Show me no more. But the relentless ghost pinioned him in both his arms and forced him to observe what happened next. They were in another scene and place, a room not very large or handsome, but full of comfort. Near to the winter fire sat a beautiful young girl, so like that last that Scrooge believed it was the same, until he saw her, now a comely matron, sitting opposite her daughter. The noise in this room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children there than Scrooge in his agitated state of mind could count. And unlike the celebrated herd in the poem, they were not 40 children conducting themselves like one, but every child was conducting itself like 40. The consequences were uproarious beyond belief, but no one seemed to care. On the contrary, the mother and daughter laughed heartily and enjoyed it very much, and the latter soon beginning to mingle in the sports. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh, o'er the fields we go, laughing all the way. Bells on bobtails ring, making spirits bright. What fun it is to ride and sing a sleighing song tonight! Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh! Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride! But now a knocking at the door was heard, and such a rush immediately ensued to greet the father, 
who came home attended by a man laden with Christmas toys and presents. Then the shouting and the struggling and the onslaught that was made on the defenseless porter. The scaling him with chairs for ladders to dive into his pockets, despoiling him of brown paper parcels, hold on tight by his cravat, hug him round his neck, pummel his back and kick his legs in, ir in irrepressible affection. The shouts of wonder and delight with which the development of every package was received. And now Scrooge looked on more attentively than ever when the master of the house, having his daughter leaning fondly on him, sat down with her and her mother at his own fireside. And when he thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and as full of promise, might have called him father and been a springtime in the haggard winter of his life, his sight grew very dim indeed. Well, I saw an old friend of yours this afternoon. Who was it? Guess. How can I? Tut, don't I know? Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge it was. I passed his office window, and he had a candle inside. I couldn't help seeing him. His partner lies upon the point of death, I hear. And there he sat alone. Quite alone in the world, I do believe. Spirit, remove me from this place. I told you. These were shadows of the things that have been. That they are what they are, do not blame me. Remove me. I cannot bear it. Scrooge turned upon the ghost, and seeing that it looked upon him with a face in which some strange way there were fragments of all faces that had shown him, wrestled with it. Leave me. Take me back. Haunt me no longer. In the struggle if that can be called a struggle in which the ghost with no visible resistance in its own part was undisturbed by the effort of its adversary, Scrooge was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness and further of being on his own bedroom. He had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. Waking in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. But finding that he turned uncomfortably cold when he began to wonder which of his curtains this new spectre would draw back, he put them every one aside with his own hands and lying down again, established a sharp lookout all round the bed. For he wished to challenge the spirit on the moment of its appearance, and did not wish to be taken by surprise and made nervous. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing, and consequently, when the bell struck one, and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. All this time he lay upon his bed, the very core and center of a blaze of ruddy light which streamed upon the bed when the clock proclaimed the hour, and which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts. He was powerless to make out what it meant. At last, however, he began to think, as you or I would have thought at first, at last, he began to think that the source and secret of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room, 
from whence on further tracing it, it seemed to shine. This idea taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. The moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called. Ebenezer Scrooge, come in. The living room had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked like a perfect grove. The leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light as if many little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that petrification of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped upon the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and great bowls of punch. In easy state upon this couch there sat a giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and who raised it high to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. Come in, come in, and know me better, man. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me, you have never seen the like of me before. Never. Have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young, my elder brother is born in these late years. I don't think I have. I'm afraid I have not. Have you had many brothers, Spirit? More than 1,800. A tremendous family to provide for. Spirit, conduct, you conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learned a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. <laughs> Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held fast. The room and its contents all vanished instantly, and they stood in the city streets upon a snowy Christmas morning. The house fronts looked black enough, and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs, and with the dirtier snow upon the ground. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or the town, and yet was there an air of cheerfulness abroad that the clearest summer air and brightest summer sun might have endeavored to diffuse it in vain. For the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets, now and then exchanging a facetious snowball, better-natured missile far than many a wordy jest, laughing heartily if it went right and not less heartily if it went wrong. But soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And at the same time, there emerged from sources of by streets, lanes, and nameless turnings, innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shop to keep warm. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in the baker's doorway, and taking off the covers of his bearer's past, sprinkled incense on the dinners of his from his torch. And it was very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice, when there was an angry word between some dinner carriers, who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humor was restored directly, for they said it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day. And so it was. God love it, so it was. Is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch? There is. 
My own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? To any kindly given. To a poor one most. Why to a poor one most? Because it needs it most. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power of his, or else it was his own kind, generous, hearty nature, and his sympathy with all poor men that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks. For there he went and took Scrooge with him, holding to his robe, and on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled, and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Think of that! Bob had but fifteen bob a week himself, he pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-room house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, braved in ribbons, which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence, and she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also braved in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes, and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, Bob's private property, conferred upon his son and heir in honor of the day, into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired and yearned to show his linen in his fashionable part. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they smelt the goose, and known it for their own and basked in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies. Whatever's got your precious father then, and your brother Tiny Tim, and Martha, wasn't as late last Christmas day by half an hour? Here's Martha, mother, hooray! There's such a goose, Martha. Why, bless your heart alive, my dear. How late you are. We did a deal of work to finish up last night and had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind, so long as you are come. Sit you down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm. Lord bless you. No, no. There's father coming. Hide, Martha, hide. So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, their father, with at least three feet of shawl, exclusive of the fringe, hanging down before him and his threadbare clothes darted up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? Not coming. Not coming? Not coming upon Christmas Day? Martha didn't like to see him disappointed. If it were only in joke, so she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms, while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off to the wash house that he might hear the pudding song in the copper. And how did little Tim behave? As good as gold and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much, and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day, who made lame beggars walk and blind men's. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this, but trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hearty. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor, came back, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, 
escorted by his brother and sister to his stool beside the fire. And while Bob, turning up his cuffs, as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons and stirred it round and round and put it on the hob to simmer, Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. There was never such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheapness were the themes of universal admiration. Act out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet everyone had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witness, to take the pudding up and bring it in. Hello, a great deal of steam. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed, but smiling proudly, with the pudding like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half of half a quartern of ignited brandy, and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding. At last, the dinner was all done. The cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth, in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a one. And at Bob Cratchit's elbows stood the family display of glass, two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. Then Bob proposed, a Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. Which all the family re-echoed, and Tiny Tim, the last of all, cried, God bless us, everyone. He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his, as if he loved the child, and wished to keep him by his side, and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit? Tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, oh, no kind spirit say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and was overcome with penitence and grief. Man, if man you be in heart, forbear that wicked talk. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. I have a toast, Mr. Scrooge. I give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, the children, Christmas, 
should be Christmas Day, I am sure on which one drinks to the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. No one knows it better than you do. My dear, Christmas Day. Then I'll drink his health for your sake and the days not for his. Long life to him. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and happy, I've no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care tuppence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for full five minutes. After it had passed away, they were with ten times merrier than before, for the mere relief of Scrooge, the baleful being done with. Bob Cratchit told them he had a situation in his eye for Master Peter, which would bring in, if obtained, full five and sixpence weekly. The two young Cratchits laughed tremendously at the idea of Peter's being a man of business, and Peter himself looked thoughtfully at the fire from between his collars, as if he were deliberating what particular investments he should favor when he came into the receipt of that bewildering income. Martha, who was a poor apprentice at a milliner, then told them of what kind of work she had to do, and how many hours she worked at a stretch, and how she meant to lie abed tomorrow morning for a good long rest. Tomorrow being a holiday, she passed at home. All this time, the chestnuts and the jug went round and round, and by and by they had a song about a child traveling in the snow from Tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty. And Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinkling of the spirits toward at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. By this time it was getting dark, the snowing pretty heavily. And as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in the kitchens, parlors, and all sorts of rooms was wonderful. Here the flickering of the blaze showed preparations for a cozy dinner, with hot plates baking through and through before the fire, and deep red curtains being drawn to shut out cold and darkness. And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stones were cast about, as though it were the burial place of giants. What place is this? A place where miners live, who labor in the bowels of the earth. But they know me. See. A light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced towards it, Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire, an old, old man and woman with their children and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The old man, in a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind upon the barren ways, was singing them a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when he was a boy, and from time to time they all joined in the chorus.
The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe and passing on above the moor sped whither, not to see, to see. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful rage of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by the thundering of water as it rolled and roared and raged among the dreadful caverns in it had worn, and fiercely tried to undermine the earth. Again, the ghost sped on above the black and heaving sea, on, on until being far away, as he told Scrooge, from any shore, they lightened on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel and looked out on the bow. The officers they, who had the watch, dark ghostly figures in their several stations, but every man among them hummed a Christmas tune or had a Christmas thought or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day with homeward hopes belonging to it. And every man on board, waking or sleeping, good or bad, had had a kinder word for another on that day than on any day in the year, and had shared in some extent in the festivities, and had remembered those he cared for at a distance, and had known that they delighted to remember him. It was a great surprise to Scrooge while listening to the moaning of the wind and thinking what a solemn thing it was to move on through the lonely darkness over an unknown abyss, whose depths were secret and as profound as death. It was a great surprise to Scrooge while thus engaged to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it as his own nephew's and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room with the spirit standing smiling by his side and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. <laughs> if you should happen by any unlikely chance to know a man more blessed in laugh than Scrooge's nephew, all I can say is, I should like to know him too. Introduce him to me and I'll cultivate his ac acquaintance. It is a fair, even-handed, noble adjustment of things that while there is an infection in disease and sorrow, there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humor. When Scrooge's nephew laughed in this way, holding his sides, rolling his head, and twisting his face into a most extravagant contortions, Scrooge's niece, by marriage, laughed as heartily as he. And their assembled friends, being not a bit behind-handed, roared out lustily. <laughs> he said that Christmas was a humbug. As I live, he believed it too. More shame for him, Fred. Scrooge's niece was very pretty, exceedingly pretty, with a dimpled, surprised-looking capital face a ripe little mouth that seemed made to be kissed as no doubt it was, all kinds of good little dots about her chin that melted into one another when she laughed, and the sunniest pair of eyes you ever saw in any little creature's head. Altogether, she was what you would have called provoking, you know, but satisfactory too, oh, perfectly satisfactory. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carried their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred. 
At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He don't do any good with it. He don't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't the satisfaction of thinking <laughs> that he is ever going to benefit us with it. I have no patience with him. Who could? Oh, I have. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself, always. Here, he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He doesn't lose much of a dinner. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner. Well, I am very glad to hear it, because I haven't any great faith in these young housekeepers. What do you say, Topper? Oh, bachelors are wretched outcasts. We have no right to express an opinion on such a subject. Do go on, Fred. He never finishes what he begins to say. He is such a ridiculous fellow. <laughs> I was only going to say that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments which could do him no harm. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him. If he finds me going there in good temper, year after year, and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only puts him in the vein to leave his poor clerk 50 pounds, that's something. After tea, they had some music, for they were a musical family and knew what they were about. When they sung a glee or a catch, I can assure you, especially Topper, who could growl away in a bass like a good one and never swell the large veins in his forehead or get red in the face over it. Bring me flesh and bring me wine, bring me wine Thou and I shall see him dine when we bear them thither. Page and monarch, forth they went, forth they went together. Though the rude winds wild lament, and the bitter weather. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while, they played at forfeits. For it is good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas. And then Blind Man's Bluff, and a new game, which Scrooge pleaded to watch. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something, and the rest must find out. And since what? he only answering to their questions, yes or no, as the case was. The brisk fire of questioning to which he was exposed elicited from him that he was thinking of an animal, a live animal, rather a disagreeable animal, a savage animal, an animal that growled and grunted sometimes, and talked sometimes, and lived in London, and walked about the streets, and wasn't made a show of, and wasn't led by anybody, and didn't live in a menagerie, and was never killed in a market, and was not a horse, or an ass, or a cow, or a bull, or a tiger, or a dog, or a pig, or a cow, or a bear. At every fresh question there was put to him, his nephew burst into a fresh roar of laughter and was so inexpressibly tickled 
that he was obliged to get up off the sofa and stamp. At last, the plump sister, falling into a similar state, cried out. I have found it out. I know what it is, Fred. I know what it is. What is it? It's your Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> Which it certainly was. Admiration was the sentiment, though some objected that the reply to, is it a bear, ought to have been yes. Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so gay and light of heart that he would have drank to the unconscious company in an inaudible speech. But the whole scene passed off in the breath of the last words spoken by his nephew, and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirit stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful, on foreign lands, and they were close at home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their great hopes, by poverty, and it was rich, in almshouse, hospital, and jail, in misery's every refuge where vain men in his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred out the spirit out. He left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. Suddenly, as they stood together in an open place, the bell struck 12. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it no more. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the grounds towards him. Let presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Ghost of the future, I fear you more than any specter I have seen. But as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear you company and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? It gave him no reply. The hand pointed straight before them. Lead on. Lead on. The night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me, I, I know. Lead on, spirit. 
They scarcely seemed to enter the city, but the city rather seemed to spring up about them. But there they were in the heart of it, unchanged amongst the merchants. The spirits stopped beside one little knot of businessmen, observing that the hand pointed to them. Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. No, I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. When did he die? Yes, do tell. Last night, I believe. Why? What was the matter with him? I thought he'd never die. God knows. What has he done with his money? I haven't heard. His company, perhaps? He hasn't left it to me. That's all I know. Bye-bye. Scrooge was at first inclined to be surprised that the spirit should attach importance to conversation apparently so trivial. But feeling assured that it must have some hidden purpose, he set himself to consider what it was likely to be. It could scarcely be supposed to have any bearing on the death of Jacob, his old partner. For that was past, and this ghost province was the future. He looked about in the very place for his own image, but another man stood in his accustomed corner, and though the clock pointed to its usual time of day for being there, he saw no likeness of himself among the multitudes that poured in through the porch. It gave him a little surprise, however, for he had been revolving in his mind a change of life, and he thought and hoped he saw his newborn resolutions carried out in this. Quiet and dark beside him stood the phantom with its outstretched hand. When he roused himself from his thoughtful quest, he fancied from the turn of the hand and its situation in reference to himself that the unseen eyes were looking at him keenly. It made him shudder and feel very cold. They left this busy scene and went into an obscure part of town, to a low shop where iron, old rags, bottles, bones, and greasy offal were bought. A gray-haired rascal of great age sat smoking his pipe. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. But she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in faded black. After a short period of blank astonishment, in which the old man with the pipe had joined them, they all three burst into a laugh. <laughs> chairwoman alone to be the first, let the laundress alone to be the second, and let the undertaker's man alone to be the third. Look here, old Joe, here's a chance, if we haven't all three met here without meaning it. You couldn't have met in a better place. You were made free of it long ago, you know, and the other two ain't strangers. What have you got to sell? What have you got to sell? Half a minute's patience, Joe, and you shall see. What odds, then? What odds, Mrs. Silver? <laughs> Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. Who's the worst for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. No, indeed, ma'am. If he wanted to keep them after he was dead, a wicked old screw, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after him when he was struck with death instead of lying gasping out his last there alone by himself. 
It's the truest word that ever was spoke. It's a judgment on him. I wish it was a little heavier judgment. And it should have been. You may depend upon it if I could have laid my hands on anything else. Open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. Speak out plain. I'm not afraid to be the first, nor afraid for them to see it. What do you call this? Bed curtains? Ha! Bed curtains. Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? Whose else's do you think? He isn't likely to take cold without them, I dare say. Ha! You may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it, nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had, and a fine one, too. They'd have wasted it by dressing him up in it if it hadn't been for me. Scrooge listened to this dialogue in horror as they sat grouped about their spoil in the scanty light afforded by the old man's lamp. He viewed them with disgust, which could hardly have been greater, though they had been obscene demons marketing the corpse itself. Ha ha! This is the end of it, you see? He frightened everyone away from him when he was alive to profit us when he was dead. Ha 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 ha! Hear it, I see, I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? He recoiled in terror, for the scene had changed, and now he had almost touched a bed, a bare, uncurtained bed, on which beneath a ragged sheet there lay a something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. The room was very dark, too dark to be observed with any accuracy, though Scrooge glanced round it in obedience to a secret impulse, anxious to know what kind of room it was. A pale light rising in the outer air fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. Scrooge, Scrooge glanced toward the phantom. Its steady hand was pointed to the head. The cover was so carelessly adjusted that the slightest raising of it, the motion of a finger upon Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. He thought of it, felt how easy it would be to do, and longed to do it, but had no more power to withdraw the veil than to dismiss the specter at his side. He thought, if this man could be raised now, up now, what would be his foremost thoughts? Adverse, hard dealing, gripping cares, they have brought him to a rich end truly. Spirit, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson. Trust me, let us go. Still the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I understand you and I would do it if I could, but I have not the power, spirit. I have not the power. Again, the spirit seemed to look upon him. If there is any person in the town who feels emotion caused by this man's death, show that person to me, spirit, I beseech you. The phantom spread its dark robe before him for a moment, like a wing, and withdrawing it, revealed a room by daylight where a mother and her children were. She was expecting someone, and with anxious eagerness, for she walked up and down the room, 
started at every sound, looked out from the window, glanced at the clock. At length, the long-expected knock was heard. She hurried to the door and met her husband, a man whose face was careworn and depressed, though he was young. There was a remarkable expression in it now, a kind of serious delight of which he felt ashamed and which he struggled to repress. Is it good or bad? Bad. We are quite ruined? No, there is hope yet, Caroline. If he relents, there is. Nothing is past hope if such a miracle has happened. He is past relenting. He is dead. She was a mild and patient creature if her face spoke truth, but she was thankful in her soul to hear it, and she said so with clasped hands. She prayed forgiveness the next moment and was sorry, but the first was the emotion of her heart. What the half-drunken woman said to me last night when I tried to see him and obtain a week's delay turns out to have been quite true. He was not only very ill, but dying then. To whom will our debt be transferred? I don't know. But before that time, we shall be ready with the money. And even though we were not, it would be a bad fortune indeed to find so merciless a creditor in his successor. We may sleep tonight with light hearts, Caroline. Yes, softened it as they would, their hearts were lighter. The children's faces, hushed and clustered round to hear what they so little understood, were brighter. And it was a happier house for this man's death. The only emotion that the ghost could show him, caused by the event, was one of pleasure. Let me see some tenderness connected with a death, or that dark chamber spirit, which we left just recently, will be forever present to me. The ghost conducted him to poor Bob Cratchit's house, the dwelling he had visited before, and found the mother and children seated round the fire. Quiet. Very quiet. The noisy little Cratchits were as still as statues in one corner and sat looking up at Peter, who had a book before him. The mother and daughters were engaged in sewing, but surely they were very quiet. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. Where had Scrooge heard those words? He had not dreamed them. The boy must have read them out as he and the spirit crossed the threshold. Why did he not go on? The color hurts my eyes. The color? Ah, oh, poor tiny Tim. And they're better now again. It makes them weak by candlelight. And I wouldn't show weak eyes to your father when he comes home for the world. He must be near his time. Pass it, rather. But I think he has walked a little slower than he used to these few last evenings, Mother. I have known him walk with... I have known him walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulders very fast indeed. And, and so have I, often. And so have I. But he was very light to carry, and his father loved him so that it was no trouble. No trouble. And there is your father at the door. She hurried out to meet him, and little Bob in his shawl, he hadn't need of it, poor fellow, came in. His tea was ready for him on the hob, and they all tried who should help him to it most. Then the two young Cratchits got upon his knees and laid each child a little cheek against his face, 
as if they said, don't mind it, father, don't be grieved. Bob was very cheerful with them and spoke pleasantly to all the family. He looked at the work upon the table and praised the industry and speed of Mrs. Cratchit and the girls. They would be done long before Sunday, he said. Sunday? Then you went today then, Robert. Yes, my dear. I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how green a place it is, but you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there on a Sunday. My little, little child, my little child. He broke down all at once. He couldn't help it. If he could have helped it, he and his child would have been further apart, perhaps, than they were. Spectre, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I, I know it, but I know not how. Tell me what man that was with the covered face whom we saw lying dead. The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him to a dismal, wretched, ruinous churchyard. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. Before I draw near to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that will be? Or are they the shadows of things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. A man's courses were foreshadow certain ends, to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name. Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I that man who lay upon the bed? No spirit. Oh no, no spirit hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been but for this intercourse. Why show me this if I am past all hope? Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. For the first time the kind hand faltered. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me that I may sponge away the writing on the stone. Holding up his hands in one last prayer to have his fates reverse, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. Yes. And the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. They're not torn down. Scrooge folded one of his bed curtains in his arms. They're not torn down, rings and all. They're here. I, I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled. They will be. I, I know they will. I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. A Merry Christmas to everybody. A Happy New Year to all the world. Hello there. Woo. Hello. 
He was as checked in his transports by the churches ringing out of the lustiest peals he had ever heard. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. No fog, no mist, no night. Clear, bright, stirring, cold, piping for the blood to dance in. Golden sunlight, heavenly sky, sweet, fresh air, merry bells. Oh, glorious, glorious. What the What's today? Eh? What's today, my fine fellow? Today? Why Christmas Day? It's Christmas Day. I haven't missed it. Uh, hello, my fine fellow. Hello. Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one at the corner? I should hope I do. Oh, an intelligent boy, a remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prized turkey that was hanging up there? Not the little prized turkey, the big one. What? The one as big as me? What a delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. It's hanging there now. It is? Well, go and buy it. Walker. No, no, I'm in earnest. Go and buy it and tell him to bring it here that I may give him the direction where to take it. Come back with the men and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. Oh, I'll send it to Bob Cratchits. He shan't know who sends it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. Joe Miller never made such a joke as sending it to Bob's will be. The hand in which he wrote the address was not a steady one, but write it he did somehow when went downstairs to open the street door, ready for the coming of the poulterer's man. As he stood there, the knocker caught his eye. He patted it with his hand. I shall love it as long as I live. I scarcely ever looked at it before. What an honest expression it has in its face. It's a wonderful knocker. Ah, here's the turkey. Hello, whoop, how are you? Merry Christmas. Scrooge dressed himself all in his best and at last got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth as he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present and walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded everyone with a delighted smile. He looked so irresistibly pleasant, in a word, that three or four good-humoured fellows said, Good morning, sir, a Merry Christmas to you. And Scrooge said afterwards that, of all the blithe sounds he had ever heard, these were the blithest in his ears. In the afternoon, he turned his steps toward his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock. But he made a dash and did it. Is your master at home, my dear? Yes, sir. Where is he, my love? He's in the dining room, sir, with the missus. He knows me. I'll go in here, my dear. Fred? Why, bless my soul, who's that? It's I, your Uncle Scrooge. I've come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Let him in. It is a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be heartier. His niece looked just the same. So did Topper when he came. So did the plump sister when she came. So did everyone when they came. Wonderful party, wonderful games, wonderful unanimity, wonderful happiness. But he was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late, that was the thing he had his heart upon. And he did it, yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob, a quarter past, no Bob. He was full 18 minutes and a half behind his time, 
Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. Hello, what do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I am very sorry, sir. I am behind my time. You are? Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It's only once a year, sir. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. No, I'll tell you what, my friend. I am not going to stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, and therefore, I am about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling to the people in the court for help and a straight waistcoat. A Merry Christmas, Bob. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavor to assist your struggling family. And we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop, Bob. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or to any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle even afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Thank you for listening to Upstart Arts Adaptation of a Christmas Carol. We wish you a Merry Christmas and very good health into the new year and hope, like Ebenezer Scrooge, that you have found ways to entertain yourself at home. Upstart Arts is an all-volunteer, non-profit theatrical collective. Please check out our social media. You can find us at Upstart Arts PA or Upstart Arts across all of your favorite platforms. Michelle Denise Norton, adapter and director. Gail Eubank, sound editor. Also playing Belinda, the old fiddler, and the sister. Elizabeth Pellegrino, reading first narrator. Ashley White, reading second narrator. Uh, Meredith Singleton, playing Ebenezer Scrooge. Paige Hoke, playing Fred and Martha. Joan Consilio, playing charity representative and first business person. Julie Musinski playing Bob Cratchit. I'm Dave Lang and I play Jacob Marley, Fezziwig and Caroline's husband. I'm Gina Wagner and I played Mrs. Fezziwig and Joe. Paige Gross playing young Scrooge, niece and Mrs. Dibbler. I'm Tess Beckett and I play Caroline and Belle. I'm Wendy Lewis, and I played Christmas Past and the Laundress. Kitty Gagan as the ghost of Christmas Present. Laura Scott Wise playing 
Mrs. Cratchit, and the second business person. Sebastian Williams playing Bella's husband, Peter Topper, third business person. Ashar Otto, uh, I'm the stage manager and I play the boy. The carolers are Paige Gross, Paige Hoke, Sebastian Williams, Tess Beckett, Dave Lang, Laura Scott Wise, and Gail Eubank. We we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good tidings we bring to you and your kin. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Now bring us some figgy pudding, now bring us some figgy pudding, now bring us some figgy pudding and bring some out here. Good tidings we bring to you and your kin. We Good tidings we bring to you and your kids.